Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Anytime Podcast. Don't forget to follow at the Anytime Podcast on Instagram. Uh, follow the show on Spotify. Leave a five-star review if you could. It helps so much. Your response to episode one was absolutely incredible. I didn't think this many people would tune in, uh, but because of your support... I have new sponsors coming soon, so thank you so much, and enjoy episode two. It's the Cadets, time is fleeting, isn't it? How many more days will pass before you wake up dead? Probably less than you think. So are you going to spend the precious few minutes you have watching Netflix and scrolling through Instagram? It wouldn't be the worst use of your time. But if you can wait at least an hour to vacate your flawed human meat suit, turn up your volume, ignore the impending doom coming so very soon for you, and welcome my guest on the show today, Scott Gesser. Scott, welcome to the pod. How are you doing, man? I am doing well. How about yourself? Oh, I'm fantastic. Any any podcast day, I'm like in the best spirits. That was a hell of an introduction. That was, uh, that was rad. I, I pride myself on my intros. I'm trying to up it every single episode. We'll see how it goes. It was um, uplifting. I, I feel good. <laughs> it was a religious experience. Uh, have you been on a podcast before? I have. Um, I was on something called Hatcast uh, a few years ago. It was, despite the name, it was about improv um, <laughs> and uh, and comedy. Um, I've been on this podcast. Uh, there was a podcast where a couple of friends of mine were watching every John Carpenter movie in order with a different person each time. Um, so I got to watch They Live Oh, uh, nice. with them. <laughs> and then we just talked about they live for an hour on the podcast afterwards. And then they did the same thing with Ron Howard. So I watched Cocoon with them <laughs> and talked about Cocoon for an hour. Um, I think there have been some other ones, but those are the ones that really jump out in my memory. I always find it interesting when podcasts are like that specific because mine has like no topic whatsoever. And I'm like trying to find topics and these people are so pigeonholed pigeonholed but uh it's it's interesting because i i i can see it both ways i like the the free flow kind of format where you can just have a discussion and whatever happens to bubble up in conversation that's what the podcast becomes and you can kind of let it go where it wants to and then i also enjoy the ones where it's like super structured and it's like okay we've got some time to talk but we need to get into this thing and then we need to move to this thing and yeah that's not uh, my style at all all right perfect <laughs> then uh then we'll go all, all over the place today yeah like uh, you don't even have to answer the questions i give you just no we're gonna talk about something else brad all right sweet i'll i'll uh i'll do it the way a political candidate would do it I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about gumballs. All right. So do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Are you into them? I, I haven't as of late, um, for a while I was working at, um, 
I don't know if I should say the name of the company. It's a bank that rhymes with Wells Fargo, but <laughs> I, uh, I worked there for about two years and I had about 15 minutes of actual work each day to do. It was kind of like uh, the movie Office Space, except like I was really, really bummed about it. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I spent the rest of the time listening to podcasts because the internet in that place would let us go to maybe two websites. So that was the only way that I could get through the day. Uh, so I'd listen to a, a shit ton of Doug Loves Movies, um, My Favorite Murder. I listened to this podcast where Anna Ferris would give horrible, horrible relationship advice to people. <laughs> like, you have to keep in mind, like, she had just been, I think, dumped by uh, Chris Pratt. And then she had this relationship advice podcast. That's so perfect. her relationship advice was basically the man is wrong 100% of the time. <laughs> um, no matter what the situation was, it was like, well, you probably should have stabbed him with a knife like you did. So you were in the right lady. Um, oh, boy. Uh, a lot of that stuff. Um, I listened to, I listened to a lot of uh, true crime podcasts. I know, I know people, uh, uh, basic bitches are huge fans of true crime podcasts, so I, I fit into that a little bit. <laughs> That's your click, huh? I'm I am I'm a basic bitch at heart. Well, I got my Starbucks this morning, so I can relate. Um, so for our listeners that don't know you, Scott is a musical comedian. Um, I recently went yes. to one of his shows. He tore the house down playing some just. Real heartwarming songs. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that heartwarming or heartwarming? Because I think either yeah, would be appropriate. I had to start taking my dog's medication after your show. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I wanted oh, to. Sorry, go ahead. I wanted to dive into what got you here. Um, were you a super creative kid growing up? I uh, so I was an only child, and. Uh, I, I loved being an only child. I think uh, a lot of only children can get pigeonholed into, you know, being lonely and, and not necessarily self-sufficient, but I was always just making stuff. And I wanted to be a musician and I wanted to be a comedian when I was little, but I wasn't good at either. And I was <laughs> deathly afraid of being in front of people, which is, which is a, a problem when you want to be a comedian, but uh, it was, I, I always wanted to do both. And I always kind of thought that those two things would be at odds with each other. Like you couldn't be a musician and a comedian. You had to kind of pick a side. And uh, I was a big Weird Al fan when I was little. So I knew that it was feasible to to blend music and comedy, but I always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And I, I remember, I think in 2000, I saw a, a half hour special on Comedy Central uh, from a guy named Stephen Lynch. Oh, and yeah. Stephen Lynch is the shit. I, I, if you're not, <laughs> for anyone listening, if you're not familiar with him, please go listen to him. He's uh, Stephen with a PH, uh, Lynch, L Y N C H. He is amazing. He's got this beautiful, angelic voice. And he sings songs with an acoustic guitar, just about horrible, horrible things, just so offensive and dark and, and horrifying things. Uh, and, and he's hilarious. His sense of comedic timing is amazing. And I heard him 
And I was like, I can do that. That is, that's what I need to do. Like I can play songs and I can be funny doing that ideally. And I can honestly use my guitar as a little bit of a crutch because it's, it's almost like this thing that keeps me at the slightest distance from the audience a little bit. Yeah. Like I love, I love playing for people, but having a guitar in front of me makes me feel a little bit less exposed uh, when I'm performing. I totally get that. So like I've been playing in bands since I was, you know, 16. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going up to play guitar, fearless, doesn't bother me whatsoever. If I have to be on stage with just a microphone, it's I'm never more anxious than in that situation. I don't know what it is. It's it's weird. It's and I'm every now and then I'll do a set without a guitar. It's it's happened a few times here and there. It is very, very infrequent that I do that. Um, but it's it feels weird holding a microphone, honestly, um, just because I mean, typically I'm playing guitar, so I've got to have a mic and a stand in front of me. Right. And every comedy class that there is, one of the first things they tell you is as soon as you get up on stage, you take the microphone out of the stand, you take the stand and you move it behind you. Right. And I have done that maybe like three or four times. And, and it just feels weird to, to be holding a microphone. Um, but it's also, it's a kind of a polarizing thing in the comedy community to, uh, to do that because there's a lot of traditionalists. There's a lot of stand-up yeah. comics who are very ingrained in the idea of what stand-up comedy has to be and anything that deviates from the norm is just not acceptable. Um, and the first time, I'm not going to say the first time that I performed because I, I came up, I came up in a weird way. Um, I performed alongside a lot of like sketch comedy troops and improv comedy troops. And there's a puppet theater in Phoenix that I sometimes work with. <laughs> so it's, it's a lot of these like groups of people where I kind of just tacked my set onto whatever it is they happen to be doing. Uh, so I was doing comedy for like five years before I really got into the stand-up scene in Phoenix. Do you think that it's uh, harder to bomb when you have a guitar? I think that for the most part, audiences are very accepting of a guitar comic if the guitar comic has the material to back up being a guitar comic. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of other musical comedians who aren't like super professional, like people like Stephen Lynch and Bo Burnham, yeah. uh, Nick Thune, uh, Mike and or uh, Mike Furman, I guess, from Pardon Firm. Um, and I've only seen a couple of local guitar comics, and it, it's tricky because I feel like if you if you're a guitar comic and you don't really have the material, it almost makes it worse. Because you're um, like people are expecting something different or almost expecting more out of you because you have this this prop with you, basically. And then when you when you bomb, it just feels extra like it's like you've fallen a little farther (laughs) because (laughs) because you almost set yourself up for like this greater success, because I think it's very easy to get an audience on my side with a guitar. Um, and I, I've certainly bombed. Um, I've had rough shows. I've had audiences that are just 
not having my shit. It, it happens to everybody. So it's higher highs and lower lows, basically. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of like anything else with comedy. Like, you're going to have good nights, you're going to have bad nights. And you can do the same set for 10 different rooms and get 10 different reactions from those right. rooms. Um, the audience is really a big part of what makes or breaks a show. Um, I'm guessing the venue is too. The venue is definitely important. Um, like, the, the place that you saw me at, uh, the Casey Jones Grill, that was... That's a fun room because they have that room that's kind of just for the comedy show. Like I, I know they have tables in there and there's like, you know, sports and pool and stuff like that in that room, but it's separated from like the proper restaurant. And right. I think if we were trying to do a comedy show in the middle of like the legit restaurant where there's like families and stuff trying to eat, yeah, it, that would it work wouldn't out. go well. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, lost my train of thought. The uh, idea that like a venue might put together a comedy show not quite knowing how comedy works, and it's like, hey, everybody, I know we don't usually do comedy here, so uh, this is something new, but we're going to turn off the Super Bowl real quick. And uh... <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's I did. Um, it, it, this is this is going to just reveal like how little I know about sports. But um, we uh, we had a show at uh, I think it was the Grid, and it was like during the World Series. Oh boy! Um, and I remember being on stage like in the middle of a song. And I had to stop because like the entire room just started cheering for something that was happening on the TVs. And I was like, this is clearly not the time for, for this show to be <laughs> happening. Like we probably should have waited like a half hour or something like that. But there are, there are definitely a lot of, there's a lot of places where there are comedy shows. And I would say maybe like 60% of them are places where there should be comedy shows. Um, there are there are definitely places where it's just not conducive to a to a show, but people try to book them anyway. And uh, yeah, that's got to be intense. <laughs> people learn, but um, but uh, as far as like audiences, uh, typically audiences have been really supportive for the most part of of what I've done. Um, other comedians are not always as uh, as happy to see a guy with a guitar. Um, and the one of the first shows that I did um, when I got in like more ingrained into the stand-up scene in Phoenix was a show that my my wife uh, used to run in downtown Phoenix at a place called Third Space. Um, and it was like for a bar show, it was very highly acclaimed. Um, I remember it was. I think in, in 2017, uh, it was nominated for the best comedy show in the, the Phoenix New Times uh, Best oh, wow. of Phoenix Awards. And it was the only show that wasn't a comedy club. Um, like, so it was like, you know, Stand Up Scottsdale and Tempe Improv and uh, Stand Up Live and then Third Space. Um, and it was, it was a great show. But uh, the the first night that I ever performed there, I showed up with my guitar and all of the other comics were looking at me like I had gone around kicking their pets 
right before <laughs> I got there. Like they were just, and there was this one guy, uh, one of the comics that was on the show that was going around to everybody before the show going like, can you believe some douchebag showed up with a, with an acoustic guitar tonight? Um, and so I, I knew that like the odds were not with me as far as the comics were concerned. Uh, but I got up, I did my set. It went, I think really well. Um, and I, I sat back down in my chair and that same guy that had gone around talking shit about me before the show came up to me, grabbed my hand with both of his, shook it vigorously and was like, dude, that was amazing. And, uh, that's really, I think the best, like interpretation I can provide of what the Phoenix comedy scene is. It's, it's a competitive scene where everybody wants to be better than everybody but they also want to be allied with the people that they think are good. Oh, I think that's just the comedy scene anywhere, isn't it? Oh, like... probably. <laughs> I, I, just wanna... I haven't seen like a lot of other local scenes, but for, like I've talked to people from, you know, other parts of the country and it's kind of more of the same all over the place. Yeah. Cause I've heard a lot of comedians on podcasts are talking about like when their friend got Conan O'Brien they like hated him. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> it's basically like every time you hear about any success from another comedian, there's this imbalance and it, like, it's the, the two wolves story, but it's uh, just one voice in your head. That's like, Hey, good for that guy. And then the other voice is like, well, yeah, but that should have been me. Like I, I should be the guy on Conan. Um, and I like, i have a hard time having that mentality because I came up with all these groups where the mentality was, we have to go out and entertain people. Right. Whereas in comedy, it's like, I have to go entertain people and I have to do it better than you and you and you and you. Um, and I just like, I'm in a, there's a comedy competition uh, for it's a funniest comic with a day job. Uh, they do it every year. It's, this is the seventh year I think that they're doing it. And it's the first year that I'm doing it. And actually the first comedy competition that I've ever entered. Um, Because I don't like the competitive aspect of the comedy scene. Um, My wife kind of talked me into doing it. And she was just like, well, you'll get some stage time. You'll probably meet some people. Maybe someone will see you and want to book you for whatever thing they're doing. And I was like, all right, that makes as, as much sense. And there's, I, I know a lot of the people who are in the scene, I'm friends or in the uh, contest. Uh, I'm friends with a lot of people in the contest. There are a lot of people who I know are, are in this thing that I would be very, very proud to lose to. Um, so I'm, I'm really just trying to have fun with it. Um, I hope there's honestly, there's a, a comedian, um, I'm going to, I'm going to plug someone else real quick. Okay. Uh, there's a comedian named Ray Howard. Um, his, his Facebook name is Ray Earl, but he is one of the funniest dudes in Phoenix. He is a, uh, he's kind of a, a flamboyant gay black man. He has the personality of like 10 people rolled into one. He just has this energy about him where he's always just on when he's on stage and he's like, he, watching him just it's like watching a 70s soul singer do comedy like he (laughs) he leaves everything on stage he is he is the james brown of comedy he like wow just high octane high energy and so hilarious um just destroys me so he's in the contest and i'm like i just hope he wins like if he (laughs) if he takes it uh, like i would be totally fine with that 
All right. Well, uh, you you mentioned a little bit, well, quite a bit about local comedy. Um, on the national level, who are your uh, favorite comedians right now? Oh gosh, um, I love Bo Burnham. Yeah. Um, Bo Burnham is actually one of those comics who makes me like feel the way I think other comics feel about each other. Because um, I remember in in twenty sixteen. Um, I was putting together a one-man show called Hebrew Rhetoric. And it was the first one-man show that I had done in like three and a half years. I had worked really hard on it. And about a month before I was going to do Hebrew Rhetoric, Make Happy came out on Netflix. And I remember watching it and simultaneously thinking, like, this is one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And I was also thinking, I am a complete and utter failure. Like, I my show doesn't have lighting cues. I don't have, you know, a, a ton of background music. I don't have uh, everything that I'm doing timed down to when I'm blinking. Um, and I mean, my show ended up being super fun and I, I hope people enjoyed it. But Bo Burnham is one of those people where I'm just like, it is not worth comparing anything that you do to, to what Bo Burnham is doing because right. he's leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else. Well, because not only uh, is he like, super hilarious but his production is unmatched dude it's ridiculous it's insane and he's self-sufficient with everything like he's right. he's one of those people where like if he coughs it's because he planned to um he's so methodical about everything he he does um and the the amount of effort that he puts into like just a 10 second bit i think is the amount of effort that most people will put into five minutes of material yeah he doesn't have filler no it's it's solid. it's, it's, it's a it's like a whole other level yeah. um and i know you know there's a million you know podcasts and articles and stories about inside and and all of the you know think pieces about what inside meant to everyone but that was like just watching that made me feel like, oh my God, I, I've released a hundred cover songs over the course of 2020 or a hundred songs in general over the course of 2020. And I have done nothing with my time. <laughs> um, like just watching him was just like, everything that I did is just garbage. <laughs> um, and I know that that's not like realistic. I know that everybody had their way of, you know, dealing with being locked in and everything, but just watching him made me feel like, oh my God, how do you possibly compare to, to what he's doing? Yeah, he's pretty incredible. Um, I did want to touch on something. I don't know how much you uh, talk about this in your comedy circles, but uh, what's the general uh, vibe with comedians you've talked to about cancel culture? I... That's always a little, a little touchy for comedians because yeah. I think that there are like, I, I think as a comedian, you have to grow and develop and read the room. Yeah. Um, and I think there are things that a lot of comedians have done in the past, as far as the material they've done, that probably isn't going to fly the way it might've flown, you know, five or 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I think there are 
like I don't necessarily like the idea of playing it safe. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are great at being clean and great at, at you know, staying on the level and everything. Um, but I also think that like there's a balance between trying to get what you want to get out and also making sure that you're interesting about it. Mm -hmm. um, like, I think that there are subjects that are considered taboo and, and subjects that maybe are considered things that, that we just shouldn't talk about in comedy. And I don't like the idea that there's, are things that can't be talked about. But I do think that if you're going to talk about certain things, you have to find a way to do it that's interesting and, and creative and unique enough to make it worth your saying things. Um, right, you're not just using it to shock people, you're actually being funny at the same time. Exactly. Um, and I, I might get some hate for this from, from some people. Um, there's, I know there's been a lot of controversy about Dave Chappelle and a lot of his comments about trans people. And I am not a trans person. Um, I have a lot of trans friends. Um, I know that a lot of them are upset about the things that he said. Um, and I think that that's totally fair. Um, I think that if, if you're a trans person, uh, you you should have every right to be upset about that material. The thing that I am personally upset about as a comedian, aside from the fact that I'm seeing my trans friends get upset, is I don't personally think the material is very funny or interesting. Um, it's mostly just trans people. Am I right? Like it's it, I I don't understand it, and therefore I'm going to make fun of it. And yeah, I, it I, felt like he was like uncomfortable about it, and he felt obligated to say something. Yeah, like you could have said nothing and you could have filled that time with material about something that that you had something to say uh, where, where you had a legitimate opinion uh, about something uh, other than, you know, what's the deal with this thing? Because, um, I mean, what's the deal with blank is, is a very 1980s, you know, platform. Uh, right. You know, what's the deal with, with airline food? What's the deal with men versus women? Um, I just, I don't think that the material that he had was interesting enough to exist. Um, and I know that there's a lot of comics that really support Dave Chappelle because that, you know, Dave Chappelle is one of those people who at this point can't do anything wrong to them. And I just, I, I don't know. I feel like if the material is there, then it's going to be funny. And, and I feel like even trans people could potentially enjoy it um i've you know i i've heard material about jewish people that i have found really funny like john mulaney's wife before his girlfriend before his girlfriend um <laughs> was jewish and he had a bunch of material about her being jewish and it was just interesting to see like this take on being with a Jewish person from someone who was raised in like a repressive Christian or Catholic household. Um, and it, and it wasn't like anti-Semitic. It was just like, this is the experience that he's had with like the Jewish people that he's been around. And it was very specific and it was yeah. very like, here's a very specific story about this person that I know who happens to be Jewish. Um, and like that 
to me, you know, it, it resonated better than if someone was just like, what's up with all these Jewish people? Uh, <laughs> I, am I right? <laughs> that like, oh, you can't even like go to the bagel shop without tripping over a pile of them. Like that's not, I mean, that's not. Places crawling with them. Right. Like that's not, but sure. But I, I don't know. Like I, I feel like there, there aren't subjects that you can't joke about, but I feel like there are a lot of subjects where if you're going to joke about them, like you better have something legitimate to say. Right. That's actually like comedic and interesting and not just what's up with this thing. Well, I think uh, it's a comedian's job to, you know, find the line, maybe mm -hmm. lean over it a little bit. But with like Dave Chappelle, it feels like he found the line and then just stormed right past it. <laughs> I think if you're going to lean over the line or, or storm past it or whatever, whatever mentality you have like whatever you come at your material with it's just got to be interesting enough to make it worth doing that sure and if you can't make it interesting you might as well just not talk about it at all uh, right because i mean your job's to entertain people and if you have yeah. to be a little bit offensive to do that that's fine but if you're doing that and not entertaining anybody get off the stage yeah the one thing where I don't necessarily agree with uh, cancel culture as far as comedy goes, because as far as like, there are certain things where the statute should never really uh, run out. Um, like obviously, you know, Kevin Spacey should probably not, you know, come back to, uh, to light. But um, when it comes to like the material that a comic does, because there are things that are considered acceptable from a comedy standpoint uh at one point that you know years later or maybe not um like if you go back and watch friends there's a lot of material on friends that like you could never get away with putting on a tv show now yeah classic controversial friends <laughs> yeah like honestly like if you have if there was a gay character on friends or if you look at like ross's ex-wife um the fact that she was gay was the only thing about that character yeah um even if like if you look at a show that was progressive at the time like will and grace every lesbian on will and grace was presented as this like fat leathery like flannelly bull dyke and it's <laughs> it's like <clears throat> that is that is not what lesbians are like across the board yes some of them are but some of them are not and like that but how is not, america supposed to know she's a lesbian scout <laughs> well that's that's the thing like not maybe we're at the point where being a lesbian doesn't have to be a defining character trait about somebody like i i think it was deadpool 2 which it, it's weird to cite a deadpool movie as like <laughs> as like a, a a source of inspiration but uh Negasonic Teenage Warhead in Deadpool 2 has a girlfriend. The fact that she has a girlfriend is completely glossed over. They just, they walk through the room, they say hi to ne Negasonic, they say hi to the girlfriend. There's no like, oh, you have a girlfriend, you're a lesbian, look at that. Like, let's talk about that for a minute. No, it's because <laughs> it, it's not the singular defining thing about her as a person. And I think 
I think anybody who has only one thing about them as a person, like that's a problem. I think yeah. you need to be multifaceted as a person to to really exist besides or beside like a cartoonification of yourself. Sure. But but I mean that's when it comes to like changing uh, material over time, there are songs that I have personally written and that I used to play all the time that I will absolutely never play again. Um, because at the time that I wrote them and at the time that I performed them, they were more acceptable than they are now. Uh, I don't want to say they were necessarily acceptable because I've always tried to push the envelope a little bit, but like, the, the material that I've done has definitely evolved over the years because there are just songs that, that I used to be able to do that if I tried to do them now, they would just come off as short-sighted or cringy or, or awful and not like awful in the way that I want them to come off as awful. Right, right, right. Yeah, like, I mean, do we want to cancel someone because they made a joke that wasn't necessarily viewed as offensive 20 years ago? Right. That's, that's where I think like, I don't necessarily agree with, with cancel culture. Right. If this person has grown and doesn't do material like that anymore, cause they know they shouldn't. Yeah. We shouldn't punish them. We should be glad that they grew and. Yeah. Learn that, to stop because everyone should evolve as a, as a performer, as a, I don't, I hate to say like as an artist, because that just sounds so like up my own ass, but like, <laughs> um, but like, that's what artists should do. They should be capable of, of evolving based on, you know, life around them and, and their own circumstances too. Yeah. Um, I know the material that I'm doing now is also not stuff that I would have necessarily done 10 years ago, because a lot of it is reflective of me being in a different place than I, than I was then. Right. Well, on uh, that note, I think we're going to take a little break and then we'll come back and talk about some of your work. Sweet. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh, if you want to help out the show uh, and you're listening on Spotify, uh, you can follow it. And a five-star review does so much more than you could imagine to help this podcast grow. Also on Instagram, follow at the Anytime Podcast. Or if you're on Twitter, follow at the Anytime Pod. Uh, if you know anybody that you think would make a great guest on the podcast, hit me up on Instagram. Uh, once again, that's at the Anytime Podcast. And uh, thanks again for listening. Welcome back to the Anytime Podcast. I'm talking with musical comedian scott guesser uh scott, yeah let's talk about uh, some of your work um you're like the most productive musician i know um <laughs> constantly putting stuff out how much time do you spend working on your material like how's that divide up it it varies a little bit depending on what i'm doing um because yeah i uh I, I have a stupid amount of, of music. I have um, currently uh, 43 releases. Um, oh I guess I think the earliest one is from 2006. Um, and I technically, I just released four albums uh, on April 1st. Um, 
the, they're the culmination of, of a year long project. So I just kind of re-released them in album format. But um, I would say with the, uh, the comedy material, that's material that I put a lot more time uh, and effort into. Um, most of the, the comedy stuff that I write uh, that ends up going into a studio album gets demoed and re-demoed and a lot of things will be retooled. Um, I retool lyrics a lot when it comes to comedy songs. Um, I do a lot of rewriting, a lot of songs change styles and, and tempos and cadences. And so there's, there's tons of time that goes into a lot of those songs. Uh, the, the serious uh, music that I release is a little bit different because there's not really parameters for a lot of those songs. Um, occasionally I'll go into working on an album thinking that I want some common theme through the album, whether it's something that I'm doing thematically throughout the music or something that the, the album itself is about. Um, but a lot of times I kind of leave that open to whatever I happen to feel like doing that day, I can do it. And a lot of times I can get multiple songs written and recorded within a day. Um, if I, if I have the time and the bandwidth, uh, there's actually an album that I made in uh, 2016 called one fine day that I recorded. I wrote and recorded the entire album in 24 hours. Um, that sounds like a nightmare. It was, it was interesting. Um, I, <laughs> It was a little bit before um, my now wife moved in with me. Um, so I was living alone at the time and I set an alarm for 11.55 PM. Um, I woke up, got over to my computer and at, at exactly midnight, I started laying down drum tracks uh, for my first song and ended up writing and recording 10 songs over the course of the next 24 hours. And then the next day I released that set of songs as an album did um, you notice a decay in the quality as you went along um i noticed it at the last song um and i will say on the album the songs are not uh listed like they're not on the album in the order that i recorded them uh but the first song and the last song are the first and last songs that i wrote and recorded and the last song is the only one on the album where i'm like <laughs> this probably shouldn't have made it. Um, the rest of them, honestly, I'm pretty stoked with how they all turned out. Um, and I didn't actually spend the full 24 hours uh, recording. I like I ate a sandwich and I took a nap at one point. Um, so I got a little bit like reinvigorated uh, going into the second half of the day. So I think that was like a little bit of a pick me up. Probably a good use of your time. <laughs> but yeah, like by the last song, I, I was definitely like, all right, I just want to get this one done so I could go to bed. Well, I think you've talked to me a little bit before, uh, about how you like to put limits on yourself when you're creating, uh, what are some other yes. examples of that? So every now and then I like challenging myself just to, to have fun with making new music and to, to see what I can do and to try something different. Um, there's a song that, or an album I wrote in, uh, 2018 called Sister Warrior. I have no idea why it's called that. I just like the title. Um, <laughs> but I, I bought this little uh, Jim Dandy parlor guitar from Gretsch and this super cheap Casio keyboard uh, that I had when I was a kid and I, I dismantled it for an art project. And I always, I was kicking myself about it and I found another one online. 
uh, so I bought it and I recorded that entire album using nothing but those two instruments. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, actually, I, I dropped it from that last year. Um, I recorded an album called Good Everything, uh, where the only instruments I used, I used some samples that I found online, like drum loops and stuff like that. Um, but I used a single keyboard um, for all of the music. Um, and then it was just my vocals on top of that. So I, I went down from two instruments to one. Um, I've done some albums where I uh, all of the song titles were given to me by other people. Um, so I had to write songs around the titles that I got from, from other folks. Um, I've, I'm like scrolling through my albums just so I can keep track of what I was doing. Um, I wrote an album once that uh, where every song was about a different woman that I've known at some point in my life. Um, so the album is just called 11 women. Um, <laughs> and so like there's, and it's, there's not any specific like type of woman. There's like friends, family members, uh, people I've worked with, um, just 11 random different women who each have a song about them. And I, I think only one of them knows it, but um yeah, a lot of just kind of weird little things. Uh, I've challenged myself to write uh, and record albums within a week. Uh, and that's a lot less impressive than doing it within a day. But it oh, does yeah. speak uh, a little more to keeping a better quality of the album throughout. Um, so so. Um, back to the, uh, the album you did with just the keyboard. Mm -hmm. Did you find that when you did that, your understanding of all that keyboard could do was just so much more than it was before you recorded it definitely it definitely helped me um with learning about the instrument because i just bought it i i bought it on a whim i i think that one's also a casio keyboard um and the only thing i remember about like the keyboard itself is that it's red um and it has a <laughs> handle and i thought all right it's a cool red keyboard with a handle let's get it um i don't think it has like a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of things on the keyboard that can affect the way a given sound sounds like there, there's not a whole lot that I can do to edit the sound that the keyboard makes. You can't customize. Yeah. Like I can't customize the sounds or anything, but the salt, like the sound bank was just massive. Um, and so a lot of what I was doing was, using different sounds that the keyboard provided and then using uh, Adobe Audition, which is the software I use to record, uh, to edit the sounds if I wanted to mess around with, you know, the pitch or uh, if I wanted to add like, you know, an echo or like a, a flanger or, right. you know, something like that. Um, I would, I would end up doing a lot in that re uh, recording software instead, but I, I know that keyboards are incredibly versatile to begin with. Like I've never been a good keyboardist. I can, I know enough about playing the piano to record what I need and then never be able to replicate it again. I um, feel you there. <laughs> well, you've been in a band as a keyboardist though. I was, I was very much posing because all of our parts were just like these uh, melodic leads that were like one handed Oh, okay. It wasn't like I was playing the piano. It was uh, basically just guitar. 
but uh oh. i think i was over glorified <laughs> you know what though like you the fact that you were able to play on stage and get away with it is is more than i would ever be comfortable with like the idea of trying to play keyboard in the moment like i i get very paranoid about the idea of recording in front of other people um because me recording is basically just playing the same thing over and over and over because i'm gonna get it wrong 50 times before i get it right on the 51st try yeah i know know that feeling (laughs) especially when it comes to guitar and like lead guitar and keyboards um because i'm a bassist by trade like that's the instrument that i actually am pretty decent at playing um i've been playing bass almost my whole life and it, it's rare that I get to play bass in the wild. Uh, so it's mostly just when I'm recording now that I get to actually pick up a bass and do something with it. Well, it's kind of funny. I took a semester of piano because I had an elective mm. I needed filled. Okay. And, and I've always had a really good ear. And we'd have sections where we played stuff by ear and we'd have sections where we had to sight read. And so one week we went up and they said, just learn something and play it by ear. So I played Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown on piano. And everyone's just like, holy shit, that was awesome. Then the next week we had to sight read. And it was like I'd never even seen a piano before. (laughs) And everyone's like, what happened to that guy? (laughs) Yeah, I, I can't read music at all. I, I, have, I used to. I mean, I, I can, like, I can look at a music staff and know what note I'm looking at on the staff, but like in real time, I would never be able to figure out what what's going on. Right. It's like if you're like, that's a letter G. I have no idea how that fits in with everything else, but that is the letter G. <laughs> like, I I know, I know like sharps and flats, and I know you know quarter notes and third notes and all that right, stuff, right, but. Right. Like in the moment, if I was like, try, I would never be able to keep up with a piece. Like when I, even when I learned bass, I learned everything in tablature form. Um, so I just saw like the, the numbers on each string and I would just cross out the top line. Have you played with bands? Yes. Um, I, I kind of miss it. Um, I haven't been in a band since 2014. Have Did you notice when you're in bands, how funny it was the, uh, level of musical education different people in the band would have yes yeah that was that was always interesting i'd be like play a g and they're like um like third third fret e string third. the big the big e string oh gosh <laughs> i don't think i i was ever in a band where anyone was quite that bad i like i honestly haven't been in a ton of bands but the last band that I was in, we were, uh, it was a band called Black Rose Mansion. Um, they existed a few years before I joined. Um, but one of my, uh, my friends, a guy named Todd Hoover, who is just one of the most incredible musicians I've ever met. He's, he's one of those guys who can pick up any instrument and figure out how to play it like a virtuoso, basically. Um, he, he was just the singer of the band. He didn't play an instrument at all in it. And as a front man, he's the type of guy that you want as a front man too, because he will go absolutely crazy on stage. He, uh, 
being, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, crib this quote from somebody and apply it to him. Um, and I don't remember <laughs> who originally said it, but being in a band with Todd was like being in a band with the weather um, because you never knew exactly what he could do. Uh, like what he was going to do next. He would uh, sometimes like if he wasn't singing, he would just parade around the room. He would like bring a bag of shakers to different shows and he would hand them out to people in the audience so that they could play along with us. Um, he would Gangnam Style was kind of big when we were a band. So he would occasionally do that out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and just just this singular, like insane presence on stage. Um, and I joined as a bassist. Um, because I had always wanted to be in a band with Todd. Their old bassist ended up moving to Tucson, and so they they needed a new one. And as soon as I uh, found out about that, I was so excited because I was like, I haven't played bass in a band in years. I, I would love to be the bassist. And I was doing comedy at the time. And, you know, when you're doing stand-up, everyone's just staring at you because you're the only thing there is on stage right. to look at. When you're the bassist, almost nobody is looking at you. Nobody <laughs> nobody cares that you're there you've got the singer and the guitarist and you've got a drummer for people who don't care about either of those and the bassist is usually like the last person that anyone looks at and i thought this is perfect because i can still get you know my music out and everything but i don't have to worry about being the sole focus of attention when sure. i'm in the band um so it was great um but the the drummer was really solid like he was one of the best drummers i've ever been in a band with and i thought the guitarist was really solid and it was one of those things where they had already had this this catalog of about like a dozen songs when i joined the band and so i just ended up getting to build my own bass parts for for most of them um, i think they gave me direction for like two songs but other than that they were basically like you you know what you're doing just just go for it yeah i've uh, i've actually done that as a bass player and uh it was kind of fun just to like change the vibe of their song just by tweaking the bass parts yeah like there were a couple things where they were like this really needs to be like this and i was like all right that makes sense um but for the most part they were just kind of letting me go nuts um and I think their last bassist was also very reserved and really was just like all root notes all the time. Yeah. Sometimes that works though. It's, it's I, I, it's the bass player like, that stays out of the way. <laughs> I like, um, I, I tend to play a lot like, um, I, I'm going to butcher his last name, but uh, Duncan Coots, Couts, something like that. Duncan from, uh, from Our Lady Peace of all oh, bands. Okay um where he's very good at maintaining this balance between you know kind of staying in the background and laying low and sticking with root notes and just going absolutely batshit crazy on the bass um and a lot of octave jumps and things like that and i tend to do a lot of that um did you ever uh did you ever listen to this band there were like a kind of pop punky band from the early 2000s the academy is i have heard of them i don't know if i've heard them so their rhythm section i think works harder than any rhythm section in any band i've ever heard because that bass player i don't think hits a note if the bass drum's not hitting really it's like so planned out so syncopated That's... i 
that's like the, bizarre. The first time I heard that band, I was like, oh, wow. He's like very focused on the bass drum. So I don't know. It's kind of cool to hear different approaches like that. It It's interesting. And so, like some rhythm sections are crazy locked in like that. Like I certainly paid a lot of attention to what our drummer was doing as yeah. a bassist in Black Rose Mansion. But it was it was interesting being in that band because they had all these songs that were fully formed by the time I joined the band. And so I learned those and, and we ended up recording an album about two months after I joined the band. Like they were already gearing up to do it. And they basically just wanted to make sure that they had a bassist who could go into the studio with them. Um, and then we started working on new songs after that. And I st- like cracks were kind of forming with the guitarist uh-huh. where I like. <laughs> I thought the guitarist was capable of a lot and I'm not a very good guitarist. Like I, I can do what I need to do for the purpose of my comedy and everything. Um, but like, I would never claim to be a, a great guitarist. And I, so I looked at this guy as being really, really great. I thought he had a lot of chops and everything. And then I started to notice that he was very good at a set number of things on the guitar. And then he would just kind of employ those same things over and over and over again to the point where uh, I want to, I was on vacation at one point and I came back and they had worked on like five songs uh, during a band practice that I wasn't at. And so they were like, let's just go through these five songs so that you can, you know, hear how they are. And four of them I thought were really solid. Uh, A couple of them in particular, I thought were like amazing. And there was one of those amazing songs that had this very specific rhythm and this specific chord progression that was really, really great. Um, it went from like E to A to B during the chorus. Um, and I think it was all uh, minor, uh, minor chords, which I am not good at. But um, <laughs> and then they played the fifth song. And as I was listening to it, I was like, this is the third song again, but just with different lyrics like the guitar part is the same. It's, it's the, it's the same, that E E minor, A minor, B minor chord progression. And it's not even like a different cadence. It's the, it's almost the same tempo. It's like the, the B minor comes in at the same point and everything. And I, I brought it up afterwards. I was like, like, I like that song, but it sounds really, really similar to this other one. And the drummer was like, if we were uh, not to compare us to the Beatles, but if we were like the Beatles, <laughs> uh, the drummer was the Ringo where he was just like, I'm happy to be here hit stuff. Um, and the, the singer Todd was like, once I mentioned it, he was like, you know, now that you mention it, like that, is, it is a little bit. And the guitarist refused to acknowledge that it was the same. Um, <laughs> and there ended up being like this kind of knockdown drag out thing, not because of that, but uh, the, the singer and the guitarist ended up really kind of going at it. And that's why the band broke up. Um, and then I was, I guess, the George Harrison of the situation where I was just like, I've written a song. Uh, but. That's I, I know George always George always declared it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was he, he was famous for uh, for writing songs and then telling the other guys that he had written one <laughs> claim to fame. Yep. All right, we're going to jump into a little segment I like to do every episode called Swift Kicks. 
who is the least funny successful comedian? Uh, Jeff Dunham. Jeff Dunham, uh, off the cuff. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I ha- I hate Jeff Dunham with a fiery passion. Yeah, he doesn't do it for me. <laughs> it's not because he's a ventriloquist. Um, it's it's truly because every ventriloquist dummy that he has is completely one dimensional, and they're all based on like racist stereotypes and like this is what i'm talking about with like cancel culture and stuff where like i don't think that jeff dunham should be canceled because he has these racist stereotype puppets i think he should be canceled because he's still using those same ones now um he hasn't grown like he hasn't grown and i mean to be fair he's making money off of it so he'll never stop but yeah like it, it just yeah, I, I really like I have never I, I can't even pity laugh when I'm watching Jeff Dunham. I, <laughs> I, I I truly hate the man. All right. Uh, do you ever use um, musicians that aren't in the comedy realm as inspiration for your comedy music? Constantly. Constantly? Um, <laughs> most of the comedy albums I have, particularly uh, the I've, I've got five right now and the three in the middle in particular um they're they're called medium pimpin orgy of one and chosen people adjacent um every every song on all of those albums is actually designed to sound like a specific band um awesome so yeah like i listened to a lot of songs by by these different artists like i'm gonna actually pull up chosen people adjacent so i remember what i'm talking about but like (laughs) just just on chosen people adjacent alone um there's uh, nods to Andrew WK, um, Vampire Weekend, Belviv DeVoe, uh, Parquet Courts, uh, Roxette, uh, uh, Dresden Dolls, um, Tom Petty, Terrence Trent Darby, Queen, uh, New Metal, P.O.D. in particular, <laughs> um, The Front Bottoms, uh, Michael Buble, and uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, I wrote a Bone Thugs and Harmony style song for that one. Oh yeah, um, I do remember that. Yeah, that uh, that was a pretty proud moment. I, there's there's cert- like I have a list on my computer of just bands where I'm like, all right, at some point if I can write a comedy song and make it sound like this, like I would love to do that. Uh, so there's bands that I've kind of specifically like targeted over the years, and Bone Thugs was one of the ones that. Just like it would be amazing if at some point I could write a comedy song that sounds like a Bone Thugs and Harmony song. Yeah, that sounds like a like a workload. It's it was honestly that one was a lot easier to write than I anticipated. Yeah. Um, and it's it's about accounting. It's uh, it's called CPA, um, and that's like the other fun part of it is like trying to take a band that's and pair it with a song that has nothing to do with like that band's ethos right where like bone thugs and harmony would never write a song about accounting um but it's also fun to like take tropes from you know a certain artist's repertoire and like like cpa as a song doesn't sound like a specific bone thug song but it sounds like it could be one of like a number of them but there's nods to specific things from specific songs sure, sure. um so like th- there's like the pre-chorus in the crossroads that goes like and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray every yeah. day every day every day um so in cpa the pre-chorus is and i'm reconciling debits and credits and debits and credits i'm reconciling credits and debits and credits and debits <laughs> uh, 
So it's it's not like a direct like parody of anything, but it's kind of like a like an homage to these different bands, or you could call it a ripoff. Either way, but yeah, it's I I love That's so funny. I love looking to different artists as inspiration, and like really, it's fun to like try to get inside someone else's head when you're looking at like uh, like a drum part. Like okay, I'm gonna write a song that sounds like a System of a Down song. Like what, what do I need to look at when I'm just looking at the drums and not factoring in any of the other instruments? Right, and right, then right. it becomes like, all right, how do I play with the bass for that? And just look at the bass and like just going like piece by piece and figuring out, okay, if I was the blank player in this band, like what would I be doing? So, yeah, just mimicking each individually and then it comes together as them instead of Yeah, you. like just trying to get outside of your own head a little bit. It's, it's yeah, a really it's a fun challenge. challenge. All right. Uh, here's a fun question. Does Anne Hathaway go to your high school reunions? <laughs> um, I, I haven't even been to my high school reunions. <laughs> um, I, uh, so to, for some backstory, I grew up in a, a town in New Jersey called, uh, called Short Hills, where uh, we, we were engulfed in the uh, Melbourne High School District. And that was the high school that Anne Hathaway went to. And for two years, my locker was next to her locker. And uh, so I saw her almost every day for two years. And that's the entirety of the story. It's like, <laughs> it's the it's the worst cool, like celebrity sighting story ever. Because like, she was two years older than me. So we had nothing to talk about. We didn't have any friends in common. She may have dated one of my friend's older brothers, but that was like, something that I may be making up in retrospect. Um, she seemed nice, I guess. She was very, very pretty in person. Um, but I know nothing about her personally. I just know where her locker was in high school. <laughs> um, so we're kind of uh, wrapping up here. Uh, people that want to hear your uh, music and comedy and the combination of both, where do they go to look for that? They should go to scottgesser.com. It's S-C-O-T-T-G-E-S-S-E-R.com. And literally every album that I've released is right on there. Most of them are free to stream and download. I think everything is free to stream. And most of it's free to download, too. Fantastic. And you have a show coming up on 420. On 420, I am performing at Cobalt in uh, downtown phoenix and i believe the show is at 7 p.m fantastic well everybody go ahead and uh, check out that show check out scottgesser.com and uh scott thanks for coming by the anytime podcast we appreciate it thank you so much for having me it has been a blast thanks everybody for listening we'll catch you on the next episode the anytime podcast with brad white produced by brad white Recorded at Dudley Studios in Glendale, Arizona.